Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult, from the University of British Columbia. International and transnational historiography has given us vivid glimpses of the development and impact of cybernetics on a national scale in such countries as the Soviet Union, Chile, and of course, in the US and Great Britain, where the field initially began to coalesce. Now, Xiao Liu's Information Fantasies, Precarious Mediation in Post-Socialist China, out from University of Minnesota Press in 2019, makes a massive contribution to the field by opening up a fascinating new vista for scholars of cybernetics, film studies, literature, media studies, science and technology studies, and beyond. Liu's meticulously researched and crisply written book takes us from the heady days of China's Qigong craze and notions of the human body as a transparent medium through which information waves could pass, through investment and research into a theory of metasynthetic wisdom that could lead to a global human-machine intelligence system, the evolution of expert systems to provide knowledge and guidance in the absence of human experts, the novel deployment of Ross Ashby's theory of ultra-stability to describe China's supposed resistance to modernization, information aesthetics within a new rising tide of advertising and market activity, and much, much more. All of this combines to reveal a China after Mao vigorously employing the theoretical tools of cybernetics to not only reconfigure its socio-political image on a national scale, but to actually craft a new post-socialist subjectivity at the scale of the individual citizen. Illustrating the profound impacts of and reactions to these efforts through provocative samplings from Chinese literature, film, and popular culture writ large, Liu manages, in the words of Oxford's Margaret Hillenbrand, to, quote, entirely reconfigure our understanding of the media landscape in 1980s China, end quote. And so without any further ado, let's turn to my interview with Xiao Liu. Xiao Liu, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you here to talk about this really, really exciting book that uh, gives us a glimpse into uh, a world that, uh, at least from my experience, has been uh, not as accessible to uh, to readers in English uh, until you've uh, brought this amazing book forward. So congratulations on this book, first of all. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for this invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to have you here. So um, can we start off as we normally do uh, on this channel with uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself, your academic background, your trajectory, uh, and how you came to an engagement with uh, cybernetics and systems theory inside the wider uh, scope of the soci- kind of sociocultural analysis that you do. Yes, sure. I'm a professor at McGill University. My research mainly focuses on media and technology in China. So how did I come to working on this book project, which focuses on the 1980s China? Um, in relation to the source of information fantasies I called in the book. So I guess my research interest in information and media technology can be traced back to my graduate school years at UC Berkeley. Um, 
When I entered the graduate program there, my major training and research interest was in literary and cultural studies. Yet any sensitive culture uh, studies scholar at that time um, mm-hmm. would notice that uh, the landscape of contemporary literature and culture uh, were quickly shifting with media and information technologies, uh, such as internet, such as uh, the digital technology. So this was the case, of course, in um, North America, but particularly in China. So uh, um, there's a particular instance um, that uh, led me uh, directly led me to uh, this interesting field in um, uh, information technology and media study is. Uh, that around uh, the the new year of 2006, 2006 a young man uh, named Hu Ge, um, he made a parody video of um, the famous Chinese director Chiang Kai-ke's new movie, The Promise. So uh, as a movie fan, he was quite disappointed with the movie, so he made a mockery, mockery video, which quickly went viral among Chinese netizens. So uh, the, the video was actually made from all the footages from parody uh, uh, DVD and other found footages uh, of Chinese TV programs. So, um, so, so this incident was actually quite uh, fascinating to me as a cultural scholar for, for uh, several reasons. So on the one hand, uh, the video is totally made of pastiches. And it, it could be a, actually an, a textbook example of all these kind of like in you know, the postmodern culture theories and critique that every humanity scholar, every humanity student would read in graduate school. But on the other hand, it also raised uh, um, a lot of questions and issues, uh, which I felt uh, um, cannot be solved with the kind of like approaches uh, of um, cultural studies and film study I was familiar with at that moment. So, um, for example, um, the video, uh, how it addressed the audience is, is very unique because, you know, the, it, is, it, is, the, it is often comes with kind of like blurry images and low definition and also reduce the sounding effects. And uh, people always watch it when they're multitasking, you know, on a digital device or like commuting on buses or trains. So the mode of spectatorship is very different from the kind of like theatrical release. And we know that kind of like theatrical mode is kind of like, you know, the very base for a lot of established methods of a film critique, uh, such as apparatus theory. So, so to me, the question is how to understand the spectatorship of the small mobile screen media and the kind of like, you know, bodily experience associated with it. So I was quite fascinated with these questions and, you know, from that point on, try to understand how information technologies um, were reshaping um, the cultural practice and, uh, um, and uh, cultural industries. So this episode seems quite far-flung from the kind of like, you know, the, the, the topics of this uh, podcast, but I think that explains my entry point, which is that uh, my interest in cybernetic system theory um, as a culture media scholar really lies in the 
uh, the ways uh, they impacted culture practices, how they impacted uh, the kind of like you know uh, media practice, how they offer the vision to understand the uh, the sensory experience, the bodily experience in the age of ubiquitous sensors, actuators, and screens. So um, around about at the same time. Um, so um, if you recall, a mobile smartphone started to take an increasingly important role in everyday life. Um, so if you look at, uh, at the back uh, this past decade, you may realize how much the kind of like, you know, always connecting is always online become a common status for most people. Um, this is even more the case for many Chinese people. Uh, uh, there was an in, uh, a very interesting book that just came out last year called Super Sticky WeChat and Chinese Society. So the authors of this book, they show that uh, how Chinese people's everyday life, from grocery shopping to interpersonal communication, even to various engagements with government administration, administrations, become mediated through this mega platform called WeChat. So um, as a scholar, I wanted to make sense of these rapid changes, you know, how this technology mediated and restricted human connections, and how uh, to understand this 24-7 temporality of connectedness and uh, information circuits. So you can see this personal experience um, lead me to think about the impact of information technologies and social and cultural practice. So then, then the question is that why in the book I, I actually go back to the 1970s and 1980s to tell the story of China, right? So um, this is studied with, this studied with an, um, you know, um, uh, I would say, editorial encounter in the East Asian Library at UC Berkeley. So uh, in a sunny uh, California afternoon, uh, I went to the library. Uh, when browsing, I rarely visited a section of uh, old Chinese journals. I found in the most uh, reputable intellectual journal, there was a series selected translation of Alvin Toffler's then newly published uh, 1980 book, uh, The Third Wave. So to people who are not so familiar with Toffler's work, he was uh, recognized, he was known as a guru who disseminated the futurist vision of a coming information society. Uh, he painted a rosy picture of a future society where all sorts of social problems would be solved by uh, uh, information technology. Uh, people would have the flexibility of deciding where and when to work. So any kind of like strenuous labor we usually associate with factual uh, work, factual labor, would be um, um, replaced by just a few hits on the keyboards. So Toffler's rosy picture sounds, you know, sounded uncannily familiar to me. Especially at that moment when you, when you have all sorts of like Silicon Valley legends continued to promise uh, technology solution to everything. So it was quite an illuminating moment for me to see 
this discourse and imaginations around information technology actually haven't changed so much through the decades, through the last few decades. So back to Toffler, uh, I, I later discovered that he was actually quite popular in China. He visited China uh, in person twice in the 1980s. The second time he was received by Zhao Ziyang, um, the then head of the party. His writing was also uh, assigned as uh, study materials for the uh, party culture. So the Chinese translation of the book uh, of his book in the third wave instantly uh, became a bestseller in 1980s China. So why Toffler uh, attracted such intense attention? Um, so I started to you know, poke around and dig into archives and, and found that the, the, you know, the interest in Toffler was actually just the tip of an iceberg. So the whole Chinese society in the 1980s, post Mao China, was quite actually taken by all sorts of fantasies with what information technology can do. Um, People not only believed in the power of information technology, but also um, adopted information theory, cybernetics, and system theory to explain all sorts of social and cultural phenomena. So reading these writings, reading these people's um, uh, uh, adoption, uh, the, the use of cybernetics to explain everything from um, you know, literature, aesthetics, to Chinese history and society, prompted me to learn more about uh, you know, the history of cybernetics. So um, I can go into more details, um, but you can see my encounter with cybernetics actually took place in this... Um, hypermediated space, you know, cybernetics to me become kind of like, you know, very crucial component or uh, a very important lineage to understand, to investigate into the intellectual history and, uh, you know, the politics of knowledge production. So history is very important in this project because it provides reference to understand the um, the discourses, the current discourse, and you know the the, the changes um, you know of our days, and that we usually associate with information technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so you've already talked a bit about the the notion of information fantasies, because I, I one of the things I like to do on this program sometimes is if if there's a title of a book that's got a lot of terminology in it to sort of unpack, even what might seem to be obvious words for people, I sometimes find there's a lot of things lurking inside. So you've already spoken a bit about information fantasies and that there was a kind of a technological optimism spawned by Toffler's work, the reception to Toffler's work in China and, and some other stuff as well. Can you talk a little bit about mediation? The subtitle of the book is fascinating phrase, precarious mediation in post-socialist China. There's a lot to, to chew on there. So can you talk a little bit about, about mediation as, as you see it, as it's conceptualized by some of the key players in the book, and then tell us a little bit about what is the, the, the precarious nature of the type of mediation that you're exploring in, uh, in post-Mao China? Yeah, uh, so the choice of uh, using the word mediation instead of media is uh, actually quite deliberate on my part. Um, this is um, this is for several reasons. You know, I have made this choice for several reasons. Um, 
because the notion of media, you know, come with um, a lot of kind of like, you know, historical baggage of understanding there. So in the first place, you know, media, um, you know, often refers to, um, you know, TV, radio, you know, this type of institutionalized mass media that we're familiar with. Uh, they usually, they're usually associated with a certain delivery modes or business model that uh, we think we, have, we, we all know, right? And uh, this, notion, this notion of media to me is quite restrictive. Um, it is not broad enough to cover, to, to, um, uh, to, de- to, to uh, define uh, or, or to convey the kind of like, you know, phenomenon I discussed in, I discussed in, in, the, in this book. And the second reason is that, you know, um, the notion of media, you know, common understanding of media um, is that uh, it often associated with technological objects. So, you know, uh, we, we always understand media, you know, associated with kind of like, you know, technical, uh, in terms of technical objects, you know. Uh, and this way, I think it always ends up reinforcing kind of like, you know, a fetish with this, uh, you know, um, technological objects, right? So, um, you know, at our time, you know, we can see technology objects is always interested with the power to transform everything to, uh, to uh, 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 induce all kinds of like, you know, social transformations. So you can still, you can, you can still feel this, this kind of like, you know, uh, you know, technology uh, a fetish with these uh, legends of Silicon Valley's and it's still quite appealing and powerful to, to a lot of people. And I feel like, you know, um, I, you know, it's, um, it's, it's exactly this kind of like fetish that I have to talk to uh, in this project, right? Mm-hmm. And so the reason is that uh, it's related to the recent development in uh, media studies. Because uh, in the past decades, the media studies, the field of media study ha- has expanded to in- include all kinds of like, you know, objects that were not usually regarded as media, such as, you know, um, for example, people write about, you know, uh, archives, write about the water and, you know, air, you know, or, you know, environmental, elemental media. So, you know, images, writing, and, you know, even like doors, mirrors, this kind of things were not associated with, were not understand as media. So I think, you know, um, this kind of like, you know, expansion of the purview of media study really raised the question, you know, ontological question about what is a media, right? So I think, you know, it's, it's occasion to, uh, to, to seriously think about um, the, you know, what makes media media. So uh, one example, for example, one example um, that I, I, I begin with my book is a yeah, photo uh, of uh, Qigong practitioner assembly uh, 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 that was uh, taken in Beijing. So in this photo, um, this Qigong practitioner, you can, you can see they were wearing a, a household cooking pot on their head, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The information so, pot, yeah? Yes, exactly. They were dubbed that, uh, you know, <laughs> they were dubbed information pots because they were re- expected to receive information from the outer space. So I think this is a very interesting um, example to show, you know, um, cooking pot, you know, it's not usually regarded as kind of like, you know, communication tool. It's not regarded as a media. Uh, but, you know, 
in this context, actually produce and facilitates new relations between the human body and the so-called information environment, right? So I think this transformation of the pod into media actually destabilizes a fixed conventional understanding of the media and raises a question about, like, you know, what does media do, right? Mm. So, um, uh, so I think you know what important here is really you know what kind of relationship is generated through this uh, process of uh, uh, mediation. So mediation, um, you know, we we know it is come from a kind of philosophical tradition. It's less about objects, but more about the kind of like you know the processes and the relations. So I think you know it is actually deals with kind of like you know context and conflicts and then negotiating negotiation between different realms and agents and objects. So I think in this instance, it's actually very helpful for us to understand um, the, the, the 1980s China context I'm focused on because, you know, you can see if you look at the kind of like, you know, uh, all these kind of writings and discourse from, you know, official ideology to the intellectual discourse to the popular culture, um, they do not necessarily form a coherent uh, uh, whole. Um, they often come with you know all kinds of like contradictions with each other. So you know mediation is a very good term to capture the kind of like very complicated negotiation between different social forces, agents, agents between uh, you know uh, uh, you know human. Uh, subjects and you know technology in that context. So that's why uh, mediation is uh, a better choice for me in this project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great, and and you you uh, have raised an issue that seems to me very central, at least in in my reading of the book. Um, this relationship between the individual and the uh, information environment. And in terms of what, you know, the, the nature of the interface, what is the interface? You even uh, early in the book, you, you mentioned uh, Mark Hansen's book, uh, New, uh, New Philosophy for New Media, where he speaks more about the human being as, as a medium, in a sense, um, that uh, the, the, the human being uh, is empowered as a converter of polymorphous digital data, able to actualize singular experience, and that the human is a kind of apparatus that renders information perceptible. And so exactly where the boundary is of media and, and what is the system, uh, the, the web of all that is, is, is really, is really crucial. And this interface and, and, and the loops between the individual and the so-called uh, information environment seem really critical to what's on the minds of the theorists, the politicians, the writers, the scholars, uh, during this period. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and and can you say something about the precarious nature of this mediation, and then maybe talk a little bit about what uh, of how you intend the term post-socialist China? Which, for people that have not studied China closely, I think they will find the term post-socialist China puzzling in itself because of this notion of you know uh, of China as as a communist country, etc. And obviously, um, there are things that have remained the same. Uh, but uh, it's a very different time that we move into uh, following Mao. So can you say a little bit about, about, about post-socialist China and, and the meaning of that term and what then makes mediation in that particular milieu at that particular historical moment uh, so precarious as you nod to uh, in the title? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think this is, a, you know, as you point out, this is a key term, um, you know, uh, of, uh, in this book. So on a most obvious level, of course, it refers to the you know, very specific social political environment of post-Mao China. So we know uh, uh, with Mao's death in 1976 and uh, the official end of the Cultural Revolution, so uh, there's a shift in terms of the politics, in terms of the direction of the party. With Deng Xiaoping come, in, come to the power, he basically shifted from Mao's class uh, struggle politics to economic development, right? So as you know, the, the source of information fantasy I uh, discussed in this, book, in this book emerged around this moment, when China started its, uh, you know, um, opening door with with these economic uh, uh, reforms and and you know with all this kind of like you know, new political climate there. So, but on, on now level, but also I want to employ the term as kind of like a critical lens to examine the set of like you know uh, globally circulated discourse about information society, when in fact closely tied to the. Cold War politics of knowledge production. So um, specifically, you know, uh, that that is with the uh, we call modernization theory, right? So uh, modernization theory uh, were actually growing out of the uh, post-war U.S. liberalism and emerged from the think tank at Harvard, uh, you know, Social Science Research Council and MIT. Um, Basically, the, uh, disseminating an image of a liberal and prosperous capitalist West, uh, especially exemplified by, of course, by the United States, as the goal of development for the rest of the world. So it aimed at providing a kind of like you know a scheme of industrialization and modernization in non-West and underdeveloped countries. And you know there are two pillars of this modernization modernization theory. One is scientism; the other is develop developmentalism. So it become kind of an ideological weapon for the United States to compete with Soviet Union during the Cold War. So I think you know the kind of like information, the discourse of information society uh, was closely tied to this um, this modernization theory. For example, Daniel Bell, uh, you know, one of the important person, which you know, his book, you know, um, post-industrial, like coming on post-industrial society, was also translated into China in the 1980s, become one of the important texts uh, associated with information age. He basically argued that like technological innovation would become kind of like you know major force to drive human society towards the future, and you know that was kind of like you know. Um, uh, uh, very, uh, you know, optimistic post for this the social utopia with associated with this information technology, right? I think put into this lineage, you know, Alvin Toffler's book, you know, Alvin Toffler's argument was not so new at all. He actually simply proposed that information technology alone can transform, you know, nature of work, you know, and the kind of like, you know, alienation of manufacturing labor. So I think technology becomes the sole solution of um, social problems um, in this instance. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, so 
I think the effect of this discourse can still be felt today. So, you know, we all have this term like, you know, Facebook revolution or Twitter revolution, right? So basically it's kind of like associated technology with uh, these social transformations, right? But this association with of information technology with modernization, modernization was actually very powerful in 1980s China. So, yeah. Um, so you can see, you know, the, 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 the crucial link here between information discourse and the post, post-socialist politics is very important to understand these politics of technology. So I think, you know, the post-socialist, post-socialism on this level, um, you know, of course, refers to the specific condition of post-modern China, but it also refers to the kind of like, you know, how this globally circulated discourse, uh, knowledge production is also kind of like closely tied to this uh, Cold War or remains of Cold War uh, framework of knowledge production that shape us, shape our understanding of, uh, you know, the uh, 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 history. Mm -hmm. It's amazing too. uh, Your book is full of uh, really specific examples of uh, Chinese uh, literature and film and television uh, and how the, that content as well as the various forms of media, the various apparatuses that are used uh, and how they are involved in the process of at least attempting to sort of reinvent the Chinese subject itself, right? The, the notion of subjecthood from from a social, the socialist subject of, say, the Cultural Revolution, to the post the post socialist uh, subject, which is a a, a a different kind of subjectivity, and how the circulation uh, is through the system uh, is involved in doing that, and, and many many wonderful examples of uh, a bunch of films that I now need to find in in my university's library and and dig into. Um, I want to jump for a second, jumping a little bit forward, because I want to come back to the way this the mediation of 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 the Chinese subject of subject of the post uh, post socialist subject is is so central to the book. But speaking of Chinese history and, and modernization theory and the and the development of China in, in the psych, I think it's the second chapter. You talk about how some scholars using um, the systems theoretic uh, notion of the ultra stable system as a framework to try and describe China's feudal past and what are perceived by these scholars to be barriers to this uh, march towards modernization. Can you say a little bit about that? Because it's, I think that's really, really fascinating from a, a systems theory point of view. Right. Um, so um, the scholar uh, who proposed this, uh, you know, use, using um, system theory to understand Chinese society and Chinese history is Jing Guanhao and his wife, uh, uh, Liu, uh, Liu Qingfeng. So, um, so uh, they basically understand the society, uh, you know, they, they understand Chinese society as kind of like a complex system consisting of uh, interacting subsystems. So to them uh, is the economic, the political, and the cultural. So they understand the understanding of Chinese society is this uh, the interaction of this subsystem through the kind of a circulation of functional inputs and output, which together achieve kind of like you know uh, homeostasis, homeostasis, and result in kind of like stability of the whole system, right? Um, 
But to lay understanding, you know, the Chinese society you know, as a system is not only stable; it's ultra stable, in the sense that they always like you know remain certain kind of like stability. That's the explanation for why Chinese society, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, despite all the change, despite you know all these kind of like you know uh, variables in history, it's still stuck in kind of like you know. Remains of feudalist system. That's the argument, right? So the essential question is that why did feudalism persist in China? So um, the answer was that an ultra stable system. But you know, but China, which kind of like regarded as stagnant, uh, and you know, about China from progressing into uh, this modern age. So I think this question is very fascinating because you know um, if we understand the kind of like you know put this in, into kind of like political situation in post-Mao China, they were actually reflecting on the consequences of cultural revolution. So they were understanding cultural revolution as kind of like you know remaining effects of feudalism in China. So this is kind of like you know uh, implied uh, political inquiry in in their question, right? So. Um, when they come to this system, they, they, they confess that you know the, the inspiration comes from you know Ross Ashby's design for the brain, uh, which is um, you know um, you know uh, so 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 what they uh, take from Ashby is that you know Ashby argues that you know a system, whether it's biological or non non biological, they always try to adjust itself in accordance to the changes in the environment. So uh, that the fluctuations of the system can be restricted with certain limits in order uh, to maintain, in order to survive, in order to maintain stability. So I think you know what attracted to Jing and Liu, uh, Jing, Jing and Liu Qingfeng, you know, the two authors, is exactly you know the the reason you know how Ashby explain the survival of this system. They use that to uh, uh, to. Um, to explain why uh, Chinese society as a system uh, re- uh, retains this such uh, extreme stability, right? So I think it's very interesting uh, moment to a very interesting moment to think about how this um, you know this notion of system theory was appropriated, appropriated, and also kind of developed in that context to uh, uh, explain certain social phenomenon in China, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and positioned also to then try and uh, be part of the the movement calling for uh, a way to break out of this and to embrace this notion of modernization. If I'm if I'm reading it correctly, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I, as as I was saying, this was you know, you know connectly, uh, closely connected to the kind of like you know uh, the notion of modernization, the notion of modern. Right. Of course, it is you know also has to do with the global dissemination of modernization theory, uh, you know, in a Cold War period. So I think in that sense, like, you know, the modernization is, the notion of modern is very important here to their, to their investigation. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to jump back a little bit to the first chapter, which is titled Extrasensory Powers, Magic Waves, and Information Explosion. So can you talk a little bit about... There's a lot in this chapter, as there is in all of the chapters. Uh, you get into um, human-machine environment, system engineering, um, 
and uh, but this this really interesting connection. You 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 start you talked early in the interview of uh, this provocative image of these qigong practitioners with pots on their heads. Can you talk a bit about about the relationship, a bit about the qigong craze uh, and the relationship between this idea of magic waves and the notions of information? And um, yeah, t- t- tell us a little bit about uh, about how information and magic psychic waves uh, are are sort of tied together in the discourse at this time. Yeah, sure. Um, so, um, well, at least Qigong fever, of course, it is, you know, spread across different uh, social strata and involves different social agents at that moment. But there's an important figure uh, in this scenario that is the uh, scientist called Qian Xuesong. So maybe we should just tell folks who aren't familiar just a little bit about a, a definition of Qigong and, a, as a practice. Well, it is kind of like, you know, um, traditional mediative practice, um, you know, uh, rooted in Chinese religious practice. And the Qi is kind of like, you know, very, uh, you know, um, nebulous term, uh, right? So the Qi is supposed to, you know, uh, uh, carry the vital energy. Sometimes it's translated as vital energy, right? So I think in, um, in the context of the, the, the Qigong fever here, uh, what's very fascinating, what is fascinating here is the, the, um, the uh, Chinese scientists, including the Chinese I just mentioned, they actually uh, argue that the qi as kind of like, you know, mode of information transmission. So this person, Qian Xuesheng, who is a famous cybernetist, he actually studied a field called somatic science. He advocated that the study of the human body in terms of information processing and transmission. So the argument is that uh, the way uh, people, uh, the way the way human body uh, uh, mobilizes qi can be understood in terms of information processing and transmission. So he really wants people to look into qigong along with other phenomena such as extrasensory powers, such as tra- tra- traditional, traditional Chinese medicine, to uncover what what he believes is a, a secret mechanism of. Uh, information uh, uh, um, transmission and processing uh, uh, of like human body. So in this sense, you know, so, you know, uh, 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 probably by this kind of like imagination of like human body, um, there were a lot of like in popular culture, in the popular culture, um, popular, popular science literature, um, there were, there were uh, constant these images or all these kind of like, you know, uh, 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 imaginations of sleep learning. So basically with a magic device connecting the cube, connected to the human body, the person connected could be fed up with ceaseless information flows even when he's sleeping. So you can see, you know, this, this is a very interesting thing about this understanding of, in, in, of the human body is how it actually adumbrated the kind of like, you know, 24-7 temporality of connectiveness that even before the ubiquity of mobile and the variable digital de- device that we have today. So I think, you know, the cybernetic logic of information moving across boundaries of human and non-human moving across the human information environment is you know, apparent in this discussion, the imagination from the 1980s. 
So I think uh, it's, it's uh, very interesting. You can see prehistory to our current, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, ubiquity connecting connection that we have today. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea of connectedness and connecting across those those barriers, as you say, and and that the chi is in you know is all, all of the different waves and signals that are in this information environment. That if we can find the right interface, uh, we can uh, we can just those things can flow through us, right? In that you know it, it goes back to also I think um, Catherine Hale's talking about the you know when as information loses its body and is able to flow uh, no matter what the sort of material substrate is for that information it can it, it's able to flow uh, and that the craze really took off and accelerated at quite a, a pace and then and then fell out of favor yes yes um well, fell out of favor mainly in 1990s with, the, of course, with the Fa uh, Gong, right? The whole Qi Gong became uh, kind of like, you know, uh, quite down. Um, but it also um, kind of like, you know, it was actually quite controversial, uh, controversial even at that moment because, you know, Chen Shui-Sung, these people, they advocated as kind of like information science, but they were also kind of like, you know, critical voice arguing this is kind of pseudoscience, right? You know, why <laughs> looking into this phenomenon, this kind of like extrasensory powers, you know, so so to some people, this is just ridiculous. But I think it is very simple, very interesting, but also very symptomatic uh, for a moment, uh, um, for that moment in, in in China, because you know, you know, uh, as I explained in, in the in the chapter, I think it's quite driven by the you know the kind of like desire of entering information society of uh, and also anxiety of of facing this information revolution at the moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's fascinating to see during the, the the period of somatic science how seriously the these extrasensory phenomena were taken and given a kind of scientific uh, legitimacy for for a period where they were explored before eventually falling out of favor. But to see the degree to which it was taken up quite seriously in scientific circles is is really amazing to, mm-hmm. to discover. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, in the next chapter, which you call The Curious Case of a Robot Doctor, which is lovely, uh, referring to some of the great uh, Chinese literature that you you take us through some amazing stories. And the, the literary <laughs> the literary and film analysis in this book is also, I mean, this is a book for film, uh, cultural scholars, uh, media studies people, as well as cyberneticians and systems theorists. It really um, is the kind of trans, transdisciplinary work I think we need a lot more of. Um, and... You start to talk about the interface, uh, rethinking labor, and the notion of the expert system, the development and deployment of something called expert systems, uh, which are not only limited to China, of course, there's there's different forms of them. But can you tell us a little bit about, about this chapter and uh, what types of innovations were going on uh, around interfaces and, and expert systems? Right. Uh, so expert system is an early generation of AI. Right. So as you just mentioned, it is not limited in China. It actually first raised and developed in the 1960s by uh, Edward Fagenbaum, who is a computer scientist at Stanford University. So um, according to Fagenbaum, you know, the goal of the expert system is to actually uh, program, uh, to, to program a kind of like an, uh, 
to to write a program that uh, that can achieve uh, a high level performance that can be used to solve uh, certain problems. So why expert? This notion of expert is actually developed opposed to another type of uh, early AI that is the general problem solver. Right? So early in, in his career, Feigenbaum was actually involved de- in developing the general problem solver. Uh, the shift from the general problem solver to expert system um, actually uh, uh, reflect or, or arise from the kind of impasse that AI research encountered at the moment, that was how to program, how to write common sense into a computer, right? So, you know, as a way to circumvent this question, you know, in order to, you know, circumvent the question of find out symbolic representation of the full range of human intelligent behavior, Feigenbaum proposed to retreat to the microvolts of isolated domains of isolated uh, areas so that you know the, the computer the program can can focus on this rather restrictive area to solve a certain problem it achieved limited scope success but also there, there are a lot of issues uh, arising from real practice because we, when we think about in in reality in practice in order to solve a problem the narrow domain of specialized knowledge often comes kind of short. They are far from sufficient. So hence, there are a lot of issues uh, arise in, in real practice. So I think, you know, uh, um, this is actually a very, uh, very interesting instance, you know, from the early generation of AI to, for us to reflect on, you know, what is AI, given that, you know, AI at, that, at our time you know, has attracted so much attention, right? So, you know, what is the nature of human uh, machine interface, right? So oh, interface you know, was often understood as kind of built-in future of machines. We always say user-friendly interface. You know, that's a way to say, you know, if you uh, design the, you know, the, the, the machines and the, the certain features in certain ways, you can ch- achieve certain kind of similes, you know, friction-free uh, interface uh, using experience, right? But I think this understanding actually uh, obscures the kind of the politics of the distribution of labor, knowledge, production that is involved in the uh, uh, human-machine uh, interactions, human-machine relations, right? So I think in this sense, the discussion uh, you know, about the politics of labor and the knowledge production from the 1980s China provide a good occasion to examine this problem. So, so in the book, I use, you know, a kind of like intellectual discussion around, uh, of course, around, um, you know, uh, knowledge, uh, politics, politics of knowledge production, because this is a moment, as I just mentioned, uh, the post-Mao uh, uh, politics just shift from class politics to a more economic, uh, you know, centered uh, scheme there. So accordingly, there's also mode of knowledge, a mode of a shift in the mode of knowledge production from Mao's time to the Deng Xiaoping's time, right? So I think it's a very, you know, a good occasion to engage with the kind of like intellectual discussion, you know, about knowledge production, about labor politics. Um, along with this um, uh, 
imaginations along with this uh, development of an expert system in China. So in this way, I think it's, you know, provide kind of like, you know, a picture for us to understand uh, the politics of human-machine interface instead of just thinking about it just in terms of like, you know, uh, technical terms. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you. In in the in the fourth chapter, we'll just jump over. We've talked about the ultra stable system already a little bit, so I want to jump to the fourth chapter where we get into the rise of advertising in post socialist China, and uh, very fascinating for me, not knowing a lot about uh, the inner workings of uh, of modern China to to even you know address the, the role that advertising plays in such a society. So a, a lot of uh, you know really um, sort of enlightening material for me to encounter. Um, and so you talk about effective form, advertising, information aesthetics, and experimental writing in the market economy. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of contested space of advertising? Because it's it's quite uh, it's quite some some very active debates inside. Um, you know how how it evolves as it first becomes you know more increasingly deployed. I mean, it seemed there there was there was always some form of advertising going on, but it 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 morphs quite a bit. And uh, I'm really interested in this notion of, you know, the science of advertising that's going on. And of course, advertising has been scientized all over the world. It's, again, not unique to China. But this notion of this fra- this wonderful phrase, sticky fractions, uh, uh, and how advertisers and, and people thinking about advertising are, are thinking about this notion of sticky fractions to me is a, a nice example of the kind of uh, analysis that's going on into uh, information flows and and as you, what you call effective form, right? Where you know, uh, as China is and moves into this post-socialist phase, we're actually trying to stimulate consumer behavior in a way that uh, in in the so-called West is quite familiar to us, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah I guess I, I think you're quite right. You know, um, the the really uh, important thing here is that as China studied these uh, economic reforms and with these. Uh, uh, um, budding market economy, the real question is how to stimulate in like consumerist design, right? So this was not a really not this was not quite a question in, in socialist China. Uh, you know, uh, um, there was you know limited amount of advertising, if you can call that advertising in ninety fifties. Uh, but uh, the kind of like you know advertising for commercial products basically disappeared during the Cultural Revolution that took place, you know, between 1966, 1966 to 1976. So uh, when, uh, you know, the economic reform starts, the, 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 the first question, of course, is, you know, otherwise advertising may come back, right? So there are a lot of discussion to, in, at that time to justify why advertising was still necessary was still possible in the socialist uh, country like China, right? Because at that time, you know, uh, China was still claimed itself as a socialist country, right? So while how to make comp- compatible, you know, socialist ideology and advertising uh, in China become, you know, very important there. So of course, you know, and again, you know, information theory, information played an in, uh, important role and this this time, you know, information was argued as an important element, an important component for the operation of the uh, socialist market, right? So, because market economy really needs the flows of information in order to operate. 
So in that sense, that's one of the important arguments uh, for people to justify the existence of or, or the return of advertising in post-1980s China. And then, you know, of course, you know, uh, um, you know, Chinese universities started to uh, have this new program called Advertising Studies. As you mentioned, the Advertising Studies was not quite like unique, was not kind of like, you know, uh, was not just limited to China. You know, actually, you know, there are a lot of like marketing studies in the West, you know, since the 1960s. So, you know, Advertising study in China actually borrowed a lot of methods, a lot of terms from uh, these marketing studies uh, from West since the 1960s. And uh, the important question, as you just mentioned, like the sticky fraction. Sticky fraction is a term uh, one of the Chinese scholars mentioned that is that, you know, um, the, the idea is that people, everyone, w- 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 uh, are surrounded by all sorts of information every day. You know, the purpose of advertising is to give people the information you need them to remember, right? So you give them the, the, the information, you, you want them to re, re, remember the crucial information about the commodity you advertise. So the sticky fraction is a way to manipulate people's rece- reception of information, right? I think this is a very interesting to think about, you know, in relation to the kind of like, you know, literature, uh, also experimental literature at that time in China with the increasing uh, media, uh, media surrounded uh, environment with all sorts of like, you know, television, radio, you know, of course, in, with, in, infused with uh, uh, commercials as well. So how to write in this kind of like, you know, in, uh, environment full of, you can say information, but you can also say full of noises, right? So there's a kind of like very central question to a lot of uh, writers at that moment dealing with this new environment. Of course, you can see, you know, um, Western modernist literature, and already, you know, a lot of scholars of Western modernist literature already started with this kind of like investigation into, you know, the relationship between modernist writing and the media. I think it's very important that here is actually to understand the politics of form. I use the, you know, affective form, because form is really kind of like political tragedy challenging the term imposed to socialist China. Because in socialist culture, the form was regarded as kind of like, you know, uh, remnants of bourgeois capitalist culture, you know, uh, the form is kind of like as kind of bourgeois uh, culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then the form, you know, it's, it's the tension to form in, in 1980s China is really kind of political challenging, you know, political challenging. Uh, 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 political, um, p- politically motivated. Uh, people want to move away from a kind of like you know, more dominated, more discourse, more style writing. So, so in this sense, it's very interesting to see the competing force. On one hand, it has these ambitions of writers, intellectuals to reinvent the form of literature. On the other hand, you have these all these ideas of writing in a new media environment. And the question is, you know, and then you have advertising study, which deals with how to, you know, use a form, use certain kind of, like, you know, uh, advertising form to, uh, 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 to, um, to, to stimulate consumers, right? I think it's very interesting to see how all these kind of metaphors converge and negotiate with, with each other in that, you know, cultural space layer. 
Mm-hmm. So, in speaking of form, your final uh, full chapter before uh, some concluding thoughts. Uh, you cinema is referred to throughout throughout the book, but the the final chapter does uh, have some focus on um, sort of transformations uh, in in Chinese cinema. Mm-hmm. So can you just uh, summarize a few of the sort of main trends that you you describe in the book as as Chinese cinema responds to the circulation of these inter- information fantasies and all of the various entailments that they bring? Yeah, um, I guess this, um, this is, I, I discussed this, of course, you know, in the last chapter, but also a little bit in the chapter related to ultra-stable system, right? So I think, you know, um, the, the, the development of Chinese cinema in the 1980s was actually quite fascinating and very complicated as well. I think to most uh, uh, film scholars, they may be familiar with the uh, new wave cinema, uh, exemplified by uh, works such as Yellow Earth by Chen Kai-ge, right? So uh, what is unfamiliar to a lot of, like, you know, Film scholars, even to Chinese film scholars, is actually the rise of kind of an entertainment film or different type of films, film experiments in, in the late 1980s, which is apart from the kind of like new wave cinema. You know, they were not regarded as so avant garde in terms of technique because they may, all, they may be more aligned with the type of genre film, entertainment film, right? So I think it's very interesting, you know, even even so, I think it's very interesting to think about, uh, you know, how the 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 kind of experiments in, in late 1980s actually emerged in response to the kind of like, you know, information environment that, um, in the 1980s, which I dis- discussed in, you know, in early chapters of the book. So, you know, it is more in terms of understanding the nature of the cinema in an information preva- prevalent and multimedia environment and, you know, how to understand the human image relation in a prevalent uh, uh, cybernetic setting. So I think this, this question, you know, uh, uh, you know were quite like draw a lot of attention in the past decades in film studies, right? So people started to look at the cinema's relation to other media, and this is mostly propelled by the sense of crisis brought by digital. So I think in these concerns with of cinema in relation to other media, actually not studied with our time with the digital age, it actually. You know, um, you know, if we take a look at the 1980s China with this kind of discussion of cinematic imagery, how it's related to uh, the kind of technology-enabled simulations or, or, or you know, simulated imageries uh, related to the kind of proliferation of images and uh, uh, electronic imageries with the presence, increasing presence of television and the video casts, video cassettes and other types of media at that time. So in that sense, 1980s, provide a very interesting occasion to think about this very theoretical and technical discussion when in fact tied to the real politics concerning the competing interest from divergent agents between the kind of political power and party control and you know more market oriented productions there. So I think you know in the last chapter I used the term liminal so um, to refer the state, the, the, the status of cinema at the moment, you know, uh, this, this actually happens on multiple levels. On one level is the technical level, because uh, cinema at the moment was challenged by other electronic media, by the budding um, 
digital technology. So the nature of cinematic imagery become kind of unstable at this moment, right? And then the second level is the socioeconomic level. You know, um, I just mentioned that's kind of like a shift from socialist state-sponsored production to more market-oriented production, right? And then on the third level is the on the practical level, um, people started to reflect on the ethics of mediation per se. So, you know, in this sense, cinematic imagery is not only a representation of social of social reality, but also kind of produce and generate new relations and powers in that context. So I think that's kind of like, you know, key term that I want to engage in, in and return back to the very beginning of the, of the book, that is the cooking pot, uh, how cooking pot can become, you know, uh, to, for us to understand the, the politics of mediation. Mm -hmm. And that circularity, of course, deeply cybernetic, that the nature of the description or the depiction, the the distinctions we draw, then re-enters the thing that we're describing. And, and, and so it's an act of creation as opposed to simply an act of description. Uh, it's very important in second order cybernetics, of course. Well, thank you. We've taken up a lot of your time. You've been most generous with your time. It's a fascinating book. It's, uh, you know, it, it just gives glimpses into places that have been uh, unavailable, certainly to scholars like myself. Uh, you know, there's a fair amount written about cybernetics and its influence at the highest levels in, in say, the Soviet Union, but much less available about China. So this is a really eye-opening book for, for someone like myself. And, and it's, uh, it's so rich. It's so transdisciplinary. It really is a wonderful read. And I, I really do encourage our listeners to pick it up. We'll close with our, our usual concluding question, which is, uh, what sorts of things are you working on now? Are you continuing in a similar vein or off in other directions? Um, yeah, uh, you can see my, my, I'm really interested in the, you know, uh, uh, technology society interface question, right? So, uh, um, uh, later this year, I got this opportunity, uh, to, uh, work at the central center for force industrial revolution, um, uh, at San Francisco as a fellow there. So one of the um, mission of this, uh, center is to, work out kind of like, you know, uh, a set of like protocols, a set of like, you know, regulations uh, and uh, a solution, pro pro propose certain kind of solution to, um, to solve the certain issues raised by digital technology and AI. So I, I'm really excited with this opportunity because it provides uh, the opportunity for me to understand the practical issues arising from this kind of like, you know, social technological interface, really from like, you know, uh, uh, everyday uh, you know, practice on the ground there. So uh, I think it's a great way uh, for me to align my research interest with this real uh, social problem. So, um, so I'm really looking forward to this um, mm. opportunity there. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, at the at the most recent um, conference of the American Society for Cybernetics, there was much discussion about uh, you know being able to look into the uh, social impacts of algorithms, and uh, there's a lot of really excellent books. You know, weapons of math. And other texts that have come out recently, and so that's obviously really, really uh, important work and work that uh, Norbert Wiener, you know, the 
founder of cybernetics urged us to do even before he saw even the vastness of where these innovations would lead that, that that we take account of the social impacts so this seems to be what you're describing the work you're about to do i think is really at the at the cutting edge uh, of what's happening in in these fields and is obviously really really urgent uh, work to be done as we discover the ways that algorithms and search engines are 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 exacerbating issues in terms of inequality racism etc so that's really exciting that uh your expertise is 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 going to be part of that that effort. So we wish you all the best and and look forward to the to the fruits of your work in that area. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and uh, all the best it's to you. It's a pleasure for mine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books and Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. We'll talk to you soon.